Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with Leo Flowers. I'm excited by today's guest, Elle Newlands, who is a voiceover actress and writer. Today we talk about the different attachment styles that you see in relationships. A lot of our arguments are based on one person being avoidant and the other person being insecure and how that manifests manifests itself uh, in a relationship. We talk about what is the real meaning behind trust in a relationship. And it's not infidelity like a lot of us think. We talk about how to love and forgive yourself. Uh, and we talk about some techniques that I, I had never heard of and I'm excited to try. And we also talk about the one question you should ask Anytime you get into an argument, this this episode is about attachment and also conflict resolution. So you'll definitely want to tune in. Uh, if you haven't, go check out thrivewithleo.com, thrivewithleo.com, so that you can get one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, and with that said, let's get into the episode. L. Newlands, I'm I'm excited to have you on today. Uh, because I posted on Facebook, uh, what was my, what was my question? My question was, what's a class you could teach? And L responded with, hold on, I'm scrolling through. What was that? Oh, she, she said how to spot an, an emotionally unavailable man in three easy steps. There's and, more than three. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I go, should I have you on my podcast? And then she goes, yeah. Be, and then we got to this whole thing about attachment, what she learned about attachment and attachment theory. And yeah. I, I've, it's interesting because I've just had uh, a conversation with someone. I'm going to have my, uh, my couples therapist. I, I go to couples therapy with my girlfriend. And in a book that she recommended was a book called Attachment. And mm. so I haven't even read it yet. I haven't looked at it yet. And so I'm fascinated to hear what your, uh, what your story is with, first of all, unavailable men and what that means. Because I feel like so many people are struggling with relationships and, and, yeah. and don't understand uh, what they're in until they're out of it. And then how attachment plays into that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that everything that I talk about is from my own perspective in the sense that I'm not ascribing blame outside of myself. And that is actually probably the greatest lesson I ever learned um, in my journey in, you know, in self-development is that it's very, very easy to, um, you know, women make jokes. I mean, there was a lot of people that even wrote on that thread. They were like, oh, you stole my class. Oh, I could do this. You know, it's like we made jokes about it. But it's like I want to be clear that when I said that, I wasn't trying to like, you know, I wasn't stating that men are the problem. And there's a lot that goes into this. And my own personal journey is that I... Well, first of all, I think I started with patterns and patterns for me in relationships 
I think for everybody. I don't think we even realize that we pick the people that we do or we do the things that we do in relationships, whether they're romantic, friendships, even family. It's like we're we're all pattern driven and we have these motivations that drive us. Um, and so the first time I sort of came across the attachment theory was when I I was listening to Gabor Mate. Um and he talks a lot about childhood attachment and how that affects addiction and also uh, ill health, how the, you know, all your patterning from childhood can really, the stress and trauma can accumulate into ill health. And so he sort of lightly touched on this idea of attachment theory. And so I went down the rabbit hole and I was like, well, you know, what are the main classifications? And I guess there's secure, insecure, and then there's avoidant. And so I realized right away, I was like, oh, great, I'm in the insecure. So for me, how that played out was I was married for 16 years, 17 years. And my ex-husband, who is a friend, so I'm not speaking ill of him, um, we realized that we were battling the, the pattern of avoidant and insecure. And so how that played out for us was that he would withdraw, which would make me want more from him. And when I wanted more from him, he would withdraw more. And then I would withdraw and then he would come towards me. And then when he came towards me, I would show up and then he would pull away again. So then I would want more. So it was like this pattern of it was almost like me reaching my arms out and him just backing up. And so, you know, we realized that that we've divorced amicably because we realized that it was just for us, it was just insurmountable. We were just very, very different people. And we married when we were young and as the decades, you know, as the years went through, we were changing. And so for me, I sort of set out to research my own patterns and I realized that I was showing up from a pattern of abandonment and rejection which is pretty common I would say in the majority of humans we all have had abandonment or rejection at some point in our lives um, but for me it was large and it didn't really show up in career for some people it shows up like the they accumulate more wealth or they, they work harder on the external so that they have more stuff so that they don't feel as, you know, insecure on the inside. For me, it was just, I would just, I was looking for love outside of myself and I didn't really know what the concept of self-love was. Um, <clears throat> and then I went to a place called Hoffman Institute. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with Hoffman Institute? I've heard of it. Uh, please enlighten us. Yeah. Hoffman Institute, uh, they have one in Connecticut and they have one here in California. And it's initially, it was, I think it's 30, I think they're celebrating 30 years. And it was started by a, a, a psychotherapist named Bob Hoffman, who talked about the concept of negative love, um, which is, again, patterns that you learn in childhood based on your your parenting. But he also looks into their parenting. So it's like the kind of like a family dynamic that gets handed down, which every family has that, and it's all different. And so the negative love theory is that you go through life and your relationships are all based around um, whatever pattern 
shows up for you. So again, for me, it was abandonment, rejection. Um, I had some challenging things in my childhood, which I don't necessarily have to go into because, I mean, it's common for people to have these kinds of family dynamics. And so for me, it was I just never felt like I was good enough. I tried very hard to please from a very young age. And so that became my pattern as a as a woman going into romantic relationships. I would, I guess, subconsciously seek out men who couldn't be there for me in their own way, whatever that meant. Um, and so then I was always in this dynamic of negative love because it was like, well, I need this from you. And what they wanted from me was leave me alone, which in a relationship doesn't really work because you have to come together. That's the whole point of being in relationship is like there has to be a meeting. And so it just, I think that from talking to my female friends, I think that that's kind of the more common dynamic between men and women. Um, and I think the research has shown that that's the more common dynamic, that it's the dance, they call it, of the avoidant and the insecure. So um, anyway, that's that's part of my story. <laughs> well, love it. I, you know, I want to unpack a couple of things. Uh, first of all, yeah. thank you for sharing that. And, and it's so important because so many people feel alone in their story and like they're the yeah. only ones who are experiencing what they're experiencing and going through what they're going through. But as you said, like there's four attachment styles. So there's not a lot of, of difference in terms of uh, ex in, uh, experiences. And like you said, the avoidant um, insecure, would you say avoidant insecure? Yeah, there's, there's, there's three main ones. I think they also added ambivalent, but there, then there's like parts of the, of, so there's avoidant, but then there's insecure avoidant. Okay, and then there's a in terms of the relationship pattern, you like one person avoids and the other person yeah is that's the most that's the most common one is so, that you find that one person is is avoidant and one person is insecure. So the insecure one needs more attention, needs more connection, and the avoidant one they're not as comfortable with that. So there's this dynamic where most of the fights happen because one person is expecting one thing from another and the other person can't give them that. And so it's just this constant kind of miscommunication of, and a lot of times it's just the attachment styles and you can change your attachment style, but until you really do the work around your patterning and you really do the work around why you have that attachment style, it can be hard. And most people don't even realize it. <laughs> yeah. You know, once you're in, it's like a fish doesn't know it's wet, right? Because it's, it's yes. spent its whole life in, in the water. And if you spent your your entire life in avoidant, insecure relationships, you don't realize that's what's happening. Can you give us an, an, uh, an instance of, of avoidant, insecure playing out in your relationship? Like what specifically did that be? Because I think it's hard for people to identify avoidant behavior and insecure uh, behavior. So what did that look like behaviorally? Um, I would say that in my marriage, it was uh, for, for my husband, he, I called it workaholism. He did not appreciate that. He just loves his job, but it was the, it was a very, very imbalanced ratio of time I would say that he was not home a lot and he was not 
he wasn't, we weren't spending quality time together. And it's not necessarily about how much time you spend. It's about how you spend it. And I think even, you know, we would be, you know, like even like on a vacation, he would have sometimes have to work or it, it just like for us, it was mostly that. And I can admit that I was extremely needy in the sense that I guess at that time in my life, especially when I met him when I was in my early 20s, I I really felt like I needed a man to sort of fill that hole that I didn't have um, inside of myself that I hadn't, you know, that I hadn't developed through my family and through, through some of the traumas that I had experienced earlier in my life. I had this missing piece. And so that's a, that's a large pressure to put on somebody. So that's how the insecure part played out for me, where it was like, I didn't realize that I didn't understand what interdependence was, where two people, you know, are their own people and they come together. I was probably very codependent and I relationships to me were most comfortable if we were spending a lot of time together and um, and talking about our feelings. I mean, it's just like some people's worst nightmare, I guess. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Not, yeah. I, yeah. I think, yeah, for a lot of, yeah, for me, definitely, yeah. I'm just now getting into that space where yeah, but that's, uh, expressing yeah. the hurt and the feelings are. Uh, yeah. But that's like, for me, it was like, I didn't know how to, st- I guess I didn't know how to stand up on my own two feet in some ways. In some ways I did because I came out here to America from Scotland on my own and I, I've made my life work and I've got a career and, you know, but it's like in an emotional capacity, there were parts of me that were, um, broken and I, and I didn't know what a, a healthy relationship looked like and so it wasn't modeled to me so 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 what I thought a relationship was was probably I was probably very smothering but that was exacerbated by the fact that he was very aloof and very disconnected and didn't talk about his feelings and didn't wasn't comfortable with that and wasn't really connected to his feelings at all so any discussion about something that was going wrong the burden fell on me to try and figure it all out because he wasn't connected to how he felt about most things. Um, so I would be trying to figure things out. And so it just became work. Can I ask you this, L? Because what what I found is um, a lot of, even people who are, right, so you have the person who's avoidant, who's avoiding talking about feelings or anything emotional. And then you have uh, the person who is, uh, has an insecure attachment who only wants to talk about uh, what's going on. Uh, looking back, do you, did you feel, though, that you had an expanded emotional vocabulary? And what I mean by that is a, a lot of people's vocabulary stays within, like, anger or happy or excited. Have, a lot of people have a very limited emotional vocabulary. And, yes. and if you're not able to uh, express the subtle nuances of hurt, sadness, grief, then uh, the person who is feeling avoidant still doesn't feel hurt because the the language is uh, wrapped around a few things. Did you did you looking back? Did you find that with yourself or no? Yeah, I would definitely see that I fell more into the 
anger and frustration camp. Um, I mean, I hate to say this and I don't mean to generalize, but, you know, I'm from the West Coast of Scotland and we're spirited people. And that's like a lot of how I, I, I saw adults expressing as I grew up was in that vein you know people would get frustrated people would yell like there was a lot of passion but not always good passion <laughs> it was just explosive at times and so I had to learn that over the years that my heart was definitely being expressed probably childishly um it's again that's like a whole other topic but you know childhood wounds and that's part of the patterns it's like the wound for me was I didn't feel heard I didn't feel seen so that scared me so I would probably get bigger than I needed to um to try and be heard or to try and be seen and then when you're dealing with somebody who shuts down whose instant go-to is shut down then that for somebody like me at that time not me now but definitely at that time um, that was very threatening because it exacerbated more of that. Well, I'm not being seen and I'm not being heard. So I was probably getting louder and more, you know, probably more emotional. And so it just became this cycle. And I think that's very common. I think like from my, when I talk to my friends, like that's common. The common dynamic is the guy just kind of gets quieter and the woman just gets louder. And I'm not generalizing at all. I mean, I'm sure it's reversed, but from just what I've heard from my own friends, that a lot of the marriage dynamics or relationship dynamics are that the woman tends to be a little more expressive and the man tends to be a little more shut down. Um, again, every relationship's different, so that's not necessarily always the case. But yeah, for me, it was definitely, I would say, frustration and anger. And yes, my vocabulary was not expansive. So I that's the work I've had to do. I've had to do an, a lot of work around feeling safe and learning how to express without necessarily jumping to a defensiveness or a, you know, a, a childish place of I'm going to get hurt now. So I'm going to have to kind of like blow up a little to kind of like diffuse that. So that was definitely, I would say that was a lot of my experience earlier probably the first 10 years of my own relationship that was where we went around the houses it was like I would be the more vocal one um other ways that the avoidant can also happen is um these a lot of people who are avoidant start out there's two well there's there's two ways that I've experienced and it's one is that Either somebody will express right up front, they, you, you'll just know I'm not into commitment and I, I'm not going to give you that. I've personally not had that. I've had more of the variety of of men who want it, but don't know how to, but it doesn't feel safe and they don't really know how to sit in that space. So up front, they're very, they're kind of almost like chasing you and they're very into you. And then there's a lot of mixed messages that start and then it starts to dial back. And then you sort of start to show up and you're like, well, what happened to that person? And they're confused because they don't feel like they've changed because they're so probably falling into a pattern. And then the defensiveness happens and then you're two people standing on guard with each other. And then again, it's the dance. <laughs> it's the dance of come to me, go away, come to me, go away. And you're both doing that because an avoidant, in my experience, they're not robots a lot of times it's like an avoidant person will feel very um, 
overwhelmed and so they'll they'll go retreat but then they'll come out and they'll want some something from you and they'll hold out their arms and they'll hold open some space for you and then you'll take it and then it, their pattern kicks in again and then it feels like oh I'm being smothered even when you're not necessarily smothering somebody it can just feel like that for somebody who has um challenges with with intimacy you know I definitely fall into the avoidant category um and uh, it's definitely my you know I'm 44 it's part of my wiring and what I've gotten used to, first of all, I've, I've come to accept that that's my default. Um, but what I've gotten better at is saying uh, to my girl, like, I, I need like, I need 90 minutes or mm. I need I need to go for a walk. So what what I realize is that in my head I always thought that space meant I needed physical space when really what I realized I need needed was to know that I could take space when I needed it. Yes. And I was never comfortable asking for it before, but I also wasn't aware that that was a a thing that, that could be communicated. And I wasn't aware that that was what I really needed. I always thought space was like, all right, I'm going to go to my house. You stay at your house or you got to leave. When I, I've I found that the space that I really need is knowing that we can be in the same room, but for an hour or 90 minutes or two hours or whatever I need, like, like I, I can be in my own head. Like there, no, there's not going to be anything asked of me. I'm not going to be needed for anything. I can just kind of uh, float around a bit and it, it makes such a difference. And, and a lot of times I'll say I need 90 minutes or two hours and then find that I only need five. You know, there was a, um, there was a scene in, what was the name of that show? The, the girl's Sex in the City. Oh, where she shut the curtains? Yeah. You saw that, for, right? Yeah, for, for five hours or whatever. I'm not here. I'm not here. And yeah. then she opens the curtains. Yeah. <laughs> right. After yeah. like two minutes, like she lays on yeah. the bed and then she's all over him. And like and yeah. it and it was one of those things that I remember. It was like we just want to know that if I do need it, I can take it. And yes. uh it's, so it's, it's it's there's something about, you know, some control in there, but we we overcorrect is is really what happens instead of finding that that gray area of I don't need you to leave the house. I just need to know that we can be in a house and I can be in my own thoughts for a minute. Uh, without yeah, that's happening. that's actually a very good way of, of putting it is the overcorrection. And I think that it's um, it goes back to the inter- interdependence, which I had no concept of until I really went down the rabbit hole. So anyway, I started to, earlier to talk about Hoffman. So I went to Hoffman three years ago and it's a week long process and it's usually about 40 people and I'm not even going to talk about what happens there because it's one of those experiences that I had a number of friends that had gone and they said, I am not going to tell you what, what it's about because it's it, you just have to go and you have to trust the process. And I'm glad they didn't because there was parts of it that, um, that surprised me. Uh, but because I was in a situation with 40 other adults and we were all just going and being led through it and we were just trusting in the process that it shifted, it radically opened me up. And there's a reason why it's called the process, because even three years later, I'm still unpeeling the 
onion. I'm still unpeeling the layer. And I went to, in January, actually in October of last year, I went back to what's called the Q2, which is, it's a long weekend and it's for graduates and it's a shorter, more intense version. And it sort of touches on some of the original things that you do at the process. So it's like a refresher. And there were wild, it was up in Napa. That's where they are kind of up in the wine country. And there was wildfires and we did one day and we got evacuated. And what's really interesting is when I originally did the process three years ago, it rained and the hillside fell down and we got evacuated. So I was twice evacuated out of um, this very intense process, which for me was extremely traumatizing because I had trauma patterns. And so, but I have to say that I think that you get out of any experience, especially when you're going down a journey of self-development, self-work, you get out of it exactly what you need to get out of it. And so I went back in January and we actually got to finish it, which was amazing for me. But I came out of that in January and I just, I realized that I'm not the same person anymore. And I look back and I think that's the reason why, even though we're divorced, it's like it's, I can stay friends, I can stay friendly with, with my ex because I, I, I really owned my part in everything that went wrong. Like I really had to do that. I had to really own my part. And when you're faced with the knowledge of what your patterns are, and so for them, what they do is like, so for example, like to, to identify a pattern, um, there's certain exercises you can do, but just even saying something like, uh, I'll always be alone. Like that's a pattern. It's like a belief. It's a, it's a belief that you've, that you've created for yourself. So even though you're in a relationship, there's a fear that you're going to get abandoned or there's a fear that you're always going to be alone. And so there's there's all the, there's all these self fulfilling prophecies that you can create in relationship um, because a lot of us are walking around unconscious. I know I was. I had I just I knew what had quote unquote happened to me in my life. I knew what had happened uh, around me. I knew why I was reacting to certain things, but I did not understand the power of the, the subconscious and unconscious patterning that was running through me. And so I was picking the same experiences over and over, trying to get a different result because that's what your psyche does in healing. Your psyche is trying to heal something and it keeps reminding you, oh, there it is again, there it is again, there it is again. Are we going to heal it this time? Are we going to heal it this time? But until you're conscious of what it is you're actually trying to heal, until you're conscious of what it is that's driving you, you're just going to keep repeating the same stuff over and over and it's just going to be it's going to show up in different clothes is how I put it. And so for me in January of this year, I went back to the Q2 and we had an extremely powerful group and I'm so glad because I, I walked away from that and I, I finally, there's a lot of forgiveness and compassion work that, that they do. And so, and there's also dark side, which is, I don't know what the psychological community would call that, but dark side for them is like the, the, the side that drives you to your, you know, sabotage and your, your darker patterns. Um, and so for me, it was like, I walked away and I was able to do a lot of forgiveness and compassion work, which I think was the final turning point for me personally and realizing, ah, oh, I get now why I I can forgive myself for the way I was. I can forgive others for the way they showed up because 
honestly, understanding that everybody is just doing their best. We're all just doing our best because until you know, you can't know something until you know it. And then, and then when you know it, it's like, oh, I can't believe I do that. And then it's up to you whether you want to work on it and create the pathway, the neural pathway to the change, or if you just want to keep repeating the same pattern. For me personally, repeating the same pattern was not an option because being having an insecure attachment was awful. I just, I felt like a child. I was this adult person in an adult life with a marriage and, and I was showing up emotionally like a child. And that's so common. That's a very, very common um I'm, we're seeing it right now with like the what's coming up for a lot of people in this current pandemic. It's like it's bringing up a lot of of those trauma patterns or just those patterning of lack or fear or anxiety. And so it, it stands to reason that until you work on the relationship with yourself, you're just going to show up the exact same way in all your relationships with others. Yeah, can you talk more about um, the? You talked about like working on expanding your emotional vocabulary. How how mm-hmm. did you do that when you when you replay old arguments that you've had? Are, have you have you been like, oh, I should have. This is what I I really should have said, or how I really should have felt. Uh, because it's, it's, it's so challenging. Like you said, even if you, you know, uh, it's so hard to then do, right? Because you, you, yes. you have this hard wiring that's in you. Uh, so when we get stressed, we usually fall back to our old patterns. For me, I would say that the vocabulary that I actually use is I, so I, had a I after I got divorced I dated someone that didn't work and it was extremely painful because I loved this person and and I realized like a lot of times when the pain would come up I was like oh that's right it's not him it's the wound and so for me I've started to classify my reactivity or my feelings towards something as the wound and for me the wound was the abandonment rejection theme and I had to really dig deep with that and I've been doing it for I would say a number, I've been doing it for years, but it really wasn't until I went to Hoffman that I was able to excavate what that truly meant. Um, And so I would say that my emotional vocabulary changed and it was less, oh, I wish I had done that or said that. It was more, I understand now why I said or did that. And I think for me personally, that's really important. If I can understand why I did or do something, then I can consciously say, all right, I'm not going to do that. And here's the choice I'm going to make that's different. And so for me, it was recognizing that I was being driven by a wound, a childhood wound. And people talk a lot about inner child and and I used to kind of roll my eyes a little at that. But And it was very difficult for me when I did some therapy around that people were like you know and get in touch with your inner child and I was like I don't know how to do that I had no clue but I think what happened for me was I realized it's less about um, trying to recreate this child and more about really accessing the wounds that you carry that are from that time in your life that may be pre-verbal or very young and you you're wounded and you've never had a chance to express them and so I started doing 
somatic experiencing, which I'm sure you've heard of, um, for anyone that doesn't know what that is, um, there's different forms of it. Peter Levine uh, kind of started the bigger movement with somatic experiencing, but there's different versions of it. But it's basically the belief that your body, and also uh, Besser van der Kolk had the book, The Body Knows the Score. Yeah, um, oh, great book. Yeah. And so the the belief in that in that circle is, and it's not just a belief, it's a it's an actual proven hypothesis. Is that what you call it? I don't know. Um, that your body actually holds on to trauma that potentially your brain doesn't realize, but your body is, is holding trauma. And so when I started doing somatic experiencing, I would have these insane physical reactions where I could, you know, I would, I couldn't stop my legs from shaking or all of a sudden I would have this urge to just like punch out in the air and my arms would, but it's incredibly healing. And so I think that going back to your original question, which was the emotional vocabulary, I realized it's not just about what I think or what I say or how I feel. It's about what's, how I'm wired, how it's stored in me and really shifting what's trapped, like the old trauma, the old energy, the old patterns, the old voices, the old, all of that old uh, programming can be shifted and it can be rewired and reprogrammed, but you have to allow your body to, to release that. And so there's, there's a couple of really great techniques. One is the newer one is brain spotting, which I've done, which is actually also very cool. And then EMDR, which is a they've used that with people that have PTSD. Um, but all of these modalities can actually be very, very helpful in helping you delve into what what's really holding you back. Like, what, what are my patterns? And so things come up um, that you potentially didn't realize. And I think that's what happened to me. I was like therapied out at a certain point and I'd I had all this understanding of why I do things and what, again, I said this earlier, what's happened to me, but, but I, I couldn't, I just couldn't get, break out of the patterns. So when I finally started to do the work around trauma, and when I say trauma, it's like some people don't think they're traumatized, but everybody has trauma. But some people think it has to be something very dramatic, but it doesn't. Like there's even being bullied in school or some, a teacher saying something to you the wrong way um, can be stored in a sense memory and then it, it you don't even realize it but it's driving your reaction throughout life and so um, for me it was that realization that I had to work on a mind body and spirit level and that really changed a lot for me because this kid in me that was like reactive because she felt scared that she wasn't seen or heard and that she would be abandoned or she was being rejected all of a sudden this kid in me was like, like this part of me that was that was stuck was actually able to express and move the, the the energy, and so it became fascinating to me that all of a sudden I there was one day that I realized I was like, wow, I'm actually functioning as an adult now because there's something in the Hoffman thing where we do these quad checks. They're called in the morning, and they ask you to check in and they say, what age are you? And it was fascinating to me that some days I would be 14, some days I would be my age, some days I would be 10, some days. So it's like you come at life from the sum of your own parts. And so I was like everybody, we're all 
coming at our life from various parts. And so those parts have different ages, they have different feelings, they have different memories, they have different traumas. And so I don't know if I'm, I feel like I'm rambling here. Am I even making sense anymore? I'm just no. going off on a tangent. <laughs> I mean, well, no, because you're saying a lot of things that I think are very valuable. You know, okay. one is, you know, you talked about how the trauma can be stored and locked in the body. Yes. And, you know, because the original question was, how are you, how have you expanded your emotional vocabulary? And, you know, part that of, was how. <laughs> right. And so a lot of us don't realize how much of our, our energy and our emotions are trapped in the body. This is why so many people cry in yoga class, right? Yes. Once their hips have been opened, once uh, their shoulders have been released, there are, you can always hear somebody uh, crying or whimpering or uh, sighing. Um, it is just this huge release. And especially at the end of class, when you're in Savasana, you, you can yes. just, there's a, a completely, there's this like frenetic energy at the beginning of class. And then at the end of class, there's this peace and calm and tranquility that, that takes place. And so uh, it, 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 is, it lends to the notion that it's not all, the communication isn't all verbal. Like they said, oh, uh, no. most communication yeah. is nonverbal, like 80, mm -hmm. 90% of it. And only ten percent of it is 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 verbal. So we we can say all the all the things we want, but how is your what does your body feel like, and how are you showing up physically? And and that's the importance of of even if you can't do yoga, of just going for a walk or getting a massage or getting body work done, whether it's uh, acupuncture or chiropractic services, but just getting worked on or dancing, you know, that's why dancing is so therapeutic and, and, and releasing and all those endorphins running through your body. You know, I, I remember even before I started to expand my vocabulary emotionally, uh, I, I would find that like sometimes uh, me and uh, my ex-girlfriends, we would get into arguments and then I would go take a boxing class or a yoga class <laughs> And I would come back and, and I'd be so much more present and so much less reactive and, and then ready to really listen and respond versus avoid and react. And so yeah. there, there's a thing, there's, there's a reason why, you know, I have a joke where I talk about like when you're arguing and the guy goes, uh, I'm out of here, I'm going for a walk. Like you... It's actually, uh, in some cases, a good uh, response because it's going for the walk that he's able to clear his head. Now, if he says, I'm going to the bar, now you're in trouble. He's Now he's doubling down <laughs> on what's causing yeah. the, the issues. But if he's just like, I, I need space, let me think about this. And, and nine times out of ten, you come back from a walk, not from the bar. You come back from a walk. Uh, you have so much more clarity and so much more presence and and you're 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 really able to then have a dialogue and unpeel the layers that uh, has started everything, you know, for sure. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with Brene Brown. But one of the things that she talks about is um, when you start to explore vulnerability and you start to explore those parts of yourself, you know, she has this story where uh, she was 
talking about it was related to work and it got heated at work and she was just like guys I have to go and walk I need 30 minutes I need to go and I need to go walk in the parking lot and she just like walked the parking lot and she came back and so she's a huge advocate for timeout like her whole thing is that there's not there, there just becomes a there becomes a moment where you realize that you do have to take your neutral corners as it were um and so I think like I, I've used this word a lot but like it was a revelation to me that that was like the whole the whole principle of interdependence is that people have to have their autonomous experiences and even in conflict and it was it was a revelation to me also that it's it's in conflict that you actually develop trust it's how you handle conflict is where you develop the trust in a relationship that was pretty revelation revelatory to me because i was a person who would avoid conflict even though my go-to version years ago of showing up hurt was to yell or to get like well why <laughs> you know I would get like that way emotional but to me I wasn't it was it was actually a discomfort with conflict that was making me more reactive and so this revelation to me that conflict and how you conflict resolution is actually where you build trust absolutely was, and, and and yeah and one of the reasons why why fundamentally is because when we talk about trust, we usually talk about it uh, li- being linked to infidelity. Yes, uh, and it's, you, yeah. right, right. You broke my trust. Mm-hmm. But really, when we're talking about trust, it's really about can I trust you with all of my feelings? Can I trust you with yes. my hurt, my sad, my grief? Can I trust you with my mistakes? Can I show up a hundred percent? and trust you to still be there for me. A lot of people don't have, they have love, but they don't have that level of trust of being able to show up 100% and feeling like the person will still love them and and show up for them. And, and it goes back to what you talked about, like working on feeling safe. That is the root of feeling safe is, is knowing that I can 100% be myself and nothing changes. Like you don't leave, you don't, you know, we, we can, we can work through it. We can work through the conflict. Yes. And, and having the ability to, um, I guess like one of the things that Brene says as well is like, be very careful about who deserves to hear your story. And so, you know, that's developing trust in a relationship is that knowing that, regardless of your past or your wounds or your your edges it's like that those can come out but that you guys can meet back in the middle and be like all right let's just put this behind us and I think going back to the original concept of what we were even talking about with the avoidant and the uh the avoidant and the insecure is that oftentimes that can be lacking that's that's the trust. That's the basic level of trust that can be lacking because of this dance, this dance that takes up so much energy and can fan the flames of dysfunction in a relationship when there's this constant dance of something went wrong. Well, I'm going to disappear for four days or um, feeling like you're walking on eggshells because you don't want to upset somebody. And so there's this passive aggressive thing that's happening. And so there's just there's so many different variations of of not showing up 
that can exist in a relationship. But when you have this dynamic of the push pull, which is the, you know, the avoidant and the insecure, it's like you have this one person who wants to pull away when things get quote unquote too heavy. And then you have the other person who wants to talk like that was always my go to. I I mean, we're going to go off on a whole other tangent here is boundaries. And so I had no concept that if I had an argument with somebody, my instant or there was a, a disagreement or whatever, and we had gone our separate ways. I had no concept at that time that reaching out to them was actually a boundary violation, because if you've established that, you know what, we need some space and we'll we'll just table this and we'll we'll talk again tomorrow. The insecure part of me would be like, I couldn't I couldn't sit with myself. I couldn't sit with my own anxiety because I was so worried. This is the end. This is the end. It's over. It's over. It's over. So that my anxiety would drive me to write this long, you know, emotional text. I'm, you know, I love you. I'm sorry. And, and over explain myself. And I thought for a very long time, I thought, well, that makes me a loving person. That makes me empathic. That makes me want to reach out. No, that that's a boundary violation because you're not giving the other person the space that they need to process because they process differently. And so that is another example, actually, of the the insecure aspect of an insecure avoidant is that the, the insecure person tends to be constantly chasing, even when it's not necessary or even when it's not warranted. There's just this need to chase. There's this need to be, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? And the avoidant person is sitting with the horror of, I can't even handle what's happening right now. I cannot take care of your feelings. And so <laughs> that is the conflict part of that dynamic that can be very challenging because you have this need for one person to, is everything all right? Please make, please let me know that everything's okay and you're not going to leave me. And the other person's like, if you don't back off, I'm out of here. So there's this like very tense standoff. Um, and I've had that happen. And like I said, I was definitely in the camp of, I'm trying to make this better. You know, why are you so angry at me? I'm just reaching out. And it's like, I realize now I'm like, no, that's a boundary violation because a healthy boundary is you've had a disagreement, you've decided not to talk for 24 hours, then you need to just talk in 24 hours and you have to learn, whoever is the insecure one, has to learn to sit with the fears and the anxiety and the just the, the general discomfort that's going to come up from knowing that you're in conflict with somebody you love and the abandonment or the rejection feeling that's going to wash over you of if I don't sort this now they might leave me and that was definitely me it's not me anymore but it was definitely me and I can see now that I was probably a lot of work in my own way I did a lot of work to solve things but I was also adding pressure and I was creating pressure by being too needy almost um and when you asked about the emotional vocabulary, that's one of the things that I've been able to change is that instead of looking for someone else to um, take care of me, I had to learn how to sit with myself and just sit with the discomfort that comes up and the pain and the and the fear that comes up from being in conflict. Because I've, what I've found is avoidant people generally aren't off thinking, I'm ending it. They're just thinking, oh my God, I'm like, I'm overwhelmed. Like, how do I work through this? And, but the insecure person is probably sitting, going to like all kinds of crazy, you know, crazy places about this is it. This is the end. They're going to leave me. They're going to. So, you know, I don't know. That's just my own experience. 
No, you know, that, that makes so much sense because the times that I have, like, I'm out of here. Like, I wasn't really out of there. I was, I was like, I was coming back. I was like, my stuff is still here. My name's on a lease. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. like, I don't, I'm overwhelmed with the emotions. And I, mm-hmm. and I haven't, a lot of people haven't learned how to uh, cope with their, their emotions. And I remember this, uh, this one girl I dated, and she said something to me that I was like, whoa, I had never thought about that. She said uh, she had never developed self-soothing skills yes yes and that's very common for for the insecure attachment it's the it's the end of well it's common for avoidant as well because you're not self-soothing if you're if you're pulling away (laughs) um but yeah self-soothing is definitely a huge dynamic and again from a personal standpoint it was something that i hadn't developed i was looking to somebody else to to hold space for me and I hadn't learned how to do that for myself. So and how? Now, so what does that look like when you know that twenty-four hours? It's a long time oh. to sit with it. Like, what, what, are you journaling? Are you meditating? Are you work? Like, what, what are what are some of the strategies and and things that you learned uh, over time? Um, I think for me, one of the first things that I had to accept was I had to be well. So to dial it back a little bit before I answer that part, I had to dial it back and be like, where am I in this? That was a question that I started to ask because I think there was a part of me when I was younger, I was more selfish, emotionally selfish, because I always be like, why can't, why, why can't you do this for me? Why can't you tell me this? Why can't you say that? I was expecting a lot from another person. Whereas I started to develop after Hoffman, I started to develop and I got better at it, it took time, but I got better at it, was where am I in this? Like, instead of putting my putting my energy outside and expecting them to, to answer these questions and to fill me up, like, where am I in this? And so that was the first step, because if I could identify myself and almost like come back into my own body and sit with myself, then I was able to put into place things like, all right, I can write in my journal or I can breathe or um, there's one of the um, one of the Hoffman tools is called recycling and it's extremely powerful where you take a belief which we'd call a pattern so I don't know for example in this scenario it would be everybody always leaves me like that would be what's really driving this this anxiety this trauma is like everybody always leaves me or I'm going to be on my own I'm afraid to be on my own. So you would take that and you would imagine a scenario, which in that moment would be the actual scenario you're sitting in and you would go through it and you would blow it up and you would see it from all angles. And then you would identify the pattern and you would, you would try and attach it to where in childhood would this have come up and you would see, and who do I attach this to? Is it my mother or father, both? Then you would sit for a minute and you'd be like, okay, where could they have got that pattern from? And you would kind of go backwards and you would try and imagine where your parents got it from. Then you take that pattern and you imagine it um, somewhere. You identify where in your body, because this goes back to the somatic, you identify where in your body you feel it. So a lot of times for me, I feel when I'm very, very anxious, I feel it in my heart space, like right in my chest. So you identify where you feel it in the body and then you actually imagine yourself pulling it out and then you sit with it and you hold it in your hands and you see it and sometimes 
it'll turn into something. It can it can be just a blob or a black mass or but sometimes it can actually take a form or it can take a memory and you can physically in that moment remember, oh, this is what this reminds me of. And then you take your hands and you rub them together vigorously for about a minute and you imagine you're change you actually tell yourself, I'm changing the pattern, I'm changing the pattern, I'm changing the pattern. And then you pull your hands apart. And when you pull your hands apart, you imagine the whatever the scenario was has turned into something light you know, something more of a, I would say, of a, a more healing nature and how you can change that belief in yourself. And then you try and imagine the scenario again and you place it back in your body with the new pattern. And so oftentimes you'll start with, everybody always leaves me and then it will change to, I can cope. I am not alone. I have myself. There'll be some self-healing you know, message that you'll give yourself. And in that moment, you've actually rewired. And it's like, if you do that over time, you're actually, you know, it's the neural feedback, you're actually like changing the pattern inside your brain. And so I started to do that. And that was extremely powerful for me, because I would get, I'd have to get real personal. It's like, well, I can't focus on what's happening right now. I have to just figure out why I'm having this reaction to this. And so that was helpful. I also would journal Sometimes even when you just you're just feeling it, you just write it down, just get it out again. It's the somatic thing, get it out of your body. Um, breathing, meditation, walking, like you said, or physical exercise, cleaning. Sometimes I would just like clean. I would obsessively clean something and it would just feel like, okay, I'm putting this energy into something else and then I'm seeing the result of, oh, it's very clean and tidy and it would give me a sense of peace. But it's just really learning to sit with your, it's, it's, it's a lot of times it's that physical trigger. It's that flight or flight response. And it happens for both. It happens with, with any human, regardless of your attachment. It, it, that's the, that's the drive. That's the thing that makes the avoidant want to run away. That's the thing that makes the insecure person want to, I want to fix this right now. It's that, it's the fight or flight response. So, so I love that. You know, uh, the breathing, I just had, uh, I think I think it was Zach Blakeney who was saying in terms of the breathing, there's the opposite nostril technique where mm -hmm. you, you breathe in through your right nostril, then breathe out through your left, and you just keep alternating to kind of uh, 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 relax your, your parasympathetic system yeah. to calm yourself down. Uh, placing placing your hands on your heart actually has a parasympathetic response. If you just take both your hands and place them on your heart space, mm. like on your chest, that actually has a similar effect. You know what else I found? And I got this from, I, I can't remember what movie it was, but I was watching it and it stuck with me because it made me realize how little I do it. And people who struggle with depression or mood disorders uh, usually struggle with eye contact. Yeah. And the, it was a brother and sister in the bathroom and the, the sister was a little older and she was brushing her teeth and a little brother comes in and he goes, uh, he goes, you're not feeling good about yourself. He goes, you're struggling with, with your self-esteem or something like that. I mean, he was a young kid. He had to be like maybe 10 in the movie. Wow. And she said, why, why would you say that? He goes, you never look yourself in the eye when you brush your teeth. Oh, wow. And it was such a powerful moment. I was like, I never look myself in the, like, I'm looking everywhere else. I might glance at myself, 
but I'm looking all around or I'm looking at parts of my body that uh, I want to like improve or shave or, or, yeah. or work out more or whatever, but I'm not looking myself in the eye. And I realize like I have to consciously make that decision to do that. And what I found is it's so grounding looking yourself in the eye, in the mirror, and just looking at anybody. We, we don't, you know, but with all the screen time and we're in such a rush, we really don't, you know, look at each other. I mean, really look at each other, really see each other for more than like a half a second. Really notice each other's eye color. Notice the pupils dilating, the 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 the, co- the color the iris the pupil all the things you know uh really get in there and i mean especially guys like guys aren't eye gazing like that yeah um, <laughs> women usually hold it a little longer but you know but just in relationships you when people talk about not feeling connected they don't realize it 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 could be something as simple as just a little little just hold that gaze a little longer two seconds five seconds maybe uh, exhale and and just really feel it and feel each other and be present for each other yeah and I think like there's actually a form of psychotherapy work I think they call it mirroring this is this to me is I I would struggle with this where, where you're supposed to look in the mirror and you're supposed to like spend five, 10 minutes a day, like just looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, I love you. I love you. And just like saying good, positive, loving things to yourself, because I don't know, for me, I'm more of a person who wants to take care of everybody else. And that's one of the things that I realized through all of my work is that um, it's a form of distraction that you know taking care of people and and quote unquote always trying to fix the relationship it's like it it became a distraction in my life where I was just always looking outside of myself and so when I had when I started to I guess it's like you said I think I started I remember one day Last year was a very challenging year because of my, I, you know, I had moved out and I was moving. And I mean, I've been married together a long time, almost 20 years. And so I, you know, I was like on my own again for the first time since I was like very young. And I'd been with this person half my life and I was alone and I was on my own. And I, I remember looking in the mirror one day and I just I saw. I was brushing my teeth, just like you said. I was like, I looked in the mirror and I was like, I saw the pain and the stress and all of it. I just saw the weight of what I was carrying. I saw it in my face and I started to cry. And I remember just looking at myself in the mirror and going, so that's what this looks like. Because I actually saw it. I could see like all of the stuff I was carrying inside of myself was reflected back for a moment. I saw the weight of the world reflected back in my face, in my eyes. And I just, I suddenly, that was a time when I was starting to do that inner child work. And in that moment, I just, I vowed to myself. I was like, I'm going to take better care of you. You can't go through the work. You can't go through life like this. 
this is what this looks like. This is what this feels like that this must hurt. And it was like a very strange moment of, of connecting with myself. Because like I said, I was so used to looking outside of myself and trying to fix everyone else and trying to fix the relationships that I wasn't looking at myself. And I finally saw myself and I made a vow and I was like, I'm going to take care of you because you don't, you don't need to be carrying this. Let's fix this. Let's figure this out. Let's let's really do the work that we need to do to to try and lift some of this burden. And that was a very powerful moment for me when I really saw it. It was just that it was like a brief moment where I just where I it was like I saw inside my own soul and I was like, whoa. But it was a turning point. So it's very powerful, like you say, just that whether it's glancing at yourself or whether it's seeing seeing that in somebody else and recognizing again it's like it's another Brene Brown thing it's like you know I've always tried to do this is assume that everybody's coming everybody's doing their best and nobody's out to get you they're not deliberately trying to people just make mistakes people people show up differently than you we don't all think the same we don't all feel the same and that's the trap is like expecting that other people are going to do things the way that you do them or expecting other people to show love to you in the way that you show it to them is a trap because you have to accept where people are and you have to accept people's shortcomings and you have to accept people's strengths and you you really just have to meet somebody where they're at. And that's the moment you decide, well, this works for me or no, this doesn't. But the problem is, is too many people get into something recognizing that it doesn't work for them and then they, they go about trying to fix the other person and that doesn't work. That's also a boundary violation. So it's like recognize yourself and show up enough for yourself that you recognize in somebody else where they're at and accept them and decide this works for me and I can work with this or don't. And that's basically become my bottom line now is, is I'm not going to do that thing where I, I'm going to expect somebody else to to show up differently because people, they, they, they show you who they are. People are who they are. And we all, you know, at the beginning, when you meet somebody, there's all that. We're showing our best foot forward, our best sides. But but really, it's like people are who they are. And so it's very hard and frustrating to spend your life with somebody in the pursuit of trying to change them and mold them into somebody that you think would be better for you. L. Newlands, is there anything that we haven't, discussed anything that you you've learned any any valuable tools or other insights that we haven't shared that you think would be valuable to the listeners I just think that I mean it's such a wide and expansive topic but I just really you have to start with yourself that's it that was the key for me was was sitting down one day and going Everywhere you go, what's that saying? There I go. And Everywhere there I am. you go, there you are. There I am. Yeah. yeah, there I am. And it's like, what's the, the, the phrase I used a lot was, where am I in this? And what's the common denominator? And usually you're always the common denominator in your own problems. <laughs> and also, if you're not looking at where you're at and you're just focusing on what everyone else is doing or not doing, you're bypassing. And so I guess for me to wrap all this up is you can we can make jokes about, oh, this, this person's that, or men are this, or women are that, or, you know, but at the end of the day, if we don't start with ourselves 
and we don't start with the most important relationship, which is the one we have with ourselves and really learn who we are and how we function, we're probably always just going to run into problems with other people because we're really not sure who we are. And so that is, I would say, is is the most important aspect of relationship is to is to really understand yourself and understand what your needs are and don't expect someone else to fulfill them because that's that's unfair on the other person and it's also probably putting a tremendous strain on the relationship itself uh, you know what i find you know to 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 bring it all full circle is that when people say they're they're dating someone who's emotionally unavailable, they don't realize how emotionally unavailable they also are. Yes. To themselves. Yes. That's right? it. You just hit the nail on the head. An emotionally unavailable person will always date an emotionally unavailable person. Because if you're not emotionally unavailable yourself, then you wouldn't chase somebody. You would just be like, you know what? This doesn't work for me. You would you would find somebody who's actually showing up, but there's a. I love that you said that. Yes, that's exactly it. It's it's it was the most again staggering. I was like, what? I'm emotionally unavailable. Yeah, you are. So work on that. Stop labeling other people and work on your own. You know your own patterns, and then you'll find that you you can function much more productively and much more peacefully in society in general and also in relationship. L. Newlands, this was such an incredible episode. I enjoyed and learned so much from this hour. Where can people find you? Plug all your things. Oh, my Lord. So I, well, I have an Instagram. Is that what you mean? Like my social media? Yeah, wherever you, you know, if you have a blog, I know you write, you perform, all the things. So I'm a voice actor. That's my my main, uh, a voice actor and a writer. I've written for Rebel Society. I've written for um, Elephant Journal. Um, I really, at this point in time, I have a couple of poetry books that I'm anthologies and I wrote my own poetry book. But at this time, I'm working on a book. Um, so I don't really, I can't really plug it yet. But if you want to just follow me on, I'm L Newlands actor on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, L Newlands. Um, and I would say watch this space. That's more of a, maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back around when I, when my book is done and we can talk more then. I love it. I'd, I'd love to have you back on, uh, because I'm sure by then you, you will be in an emotionally available relationship. Uh, with so. with another person because right now you're yeah. mostly available for yourself. That's great, and you have yes. your dog. Uh, yeah. that, you, that definitely uh, is very clear about what they want and and yes. what their needs. There's there's no question about when he's hungry and when he has to go pee. Uh, yeah, they're they're very they're very they're very present creatures. Yes. They remind you to be like, oh, gosh, come on, come back to Earth, come back to Earth. And I think it's important to let people know that we actually met through comedy stand up. That's I think that's actually kind of funny in a way because I don't do stand up anymore. But that's how we actually met. So I find it interesting that two people in L.A. uh, had this conversation that came from like a stand up show. Well, you know, the the thing, you know, I find conversations with comedians to be very like robust and uh and informative and engaging because as as comics human we, condition. We, yeah, we have to we've gone through so many things and we 
and and to be a great comedian and to be a great writer and artist requires you to do work on yourself and you to explore the layers and depths of humanity and and so you know yeah. we're able to have these types of conversations uh, especially as we get older and we're still yeah. doing it you know when you're young you it's very limited you know we couldn't have had this conversation when we we're both in our 20s but no. uh, at at this stage in our life we're able to really dig deep into these conversations yeah and be observant that's that's another thing just observe observe what's happening round about you with that whole where am i in this sit back for a minute and just look out through your own eyes and, and instead of reacting or judging or attaching blame to someone else just be like what's the pattern here how often does this happen and how often does this involve me you'll be surprised <laughs> absolutely absolutely and l last question i ask this of everyone who is uh, on the podcast because i believe there's always one person who's listening who may be on the precipice of ending their life yeah before you kill yourself what would you say to that person I mean, the most obvious is you matter because if you're gonna if you're gonna end your life, you you've come to a belief that you just don't matter, but you matter. And I've always had this, I, you know, I've thought about this like that moment where I actually thought about doing a short because it was so interesting. Where that moment where I imagine if somebody does end their life. There must be a moment, if you believe in this, where your soul leaves your body. And I wonder if you just have that moment when all of the pain and all of the weight, the weight of everything that's driven you there isn't there anymore. And you just look down and you go, what have I done? And I think for me, the worst and darkest times of my life, that's what kept me here was that that feeling of, no, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more on the other side of this. So I would definitely just implore somebody to just it's very trite to say reach out you can't reach out when you're that when you're that low you can't reach out but if there's any chance you can have that moment where you imagine what it's gonna if you could be conscious of what that's gonna look like when you take the pain away and you look down and you go what did I do and that's that's something that haunts me. Is is that is that a possibility that somebody could have a cognizance on the other side of it and regret it? Because you're always important. You're worthy to somebody, and you're you matter to someone. And I think maybe that's what this time and the planet. I'm hoping that's what this time and the planet is going to encourage more of of people really connecting with others and reaching out. L. Newlands, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, listeners, for listening in. Remember, this episode, this podcast, is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the number 1-800-SUICIDE. Uh, there are different online apps that you can use. There's online therapy. I've signed up for online therapy myself. I've called that number myself. Uh, get help. Your story matters. We want to see you again tomorrow your story matters and go to thrivewithleo.com if you want one-on-one coaching with yours truly that's thrivewithleo.com 
Thank you all for tuning in and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Thank you, Elle.